Ted was uh, <coughs> praying for kings, making that in reference to nobody in Sacramento, per se, but uh, nonetheless, we pray for all kings today and all leaders, and we come together as a family in Christ, and there are a few places that are sweeter to be any day of the week, and I'll take it any day of the week. It would be my desire if we could be here seven days a week just to be with the Lord and be with the people of God and to enjoy just his goodness and his grace and his favor, which he has showered upon us. And uh, God is good in season and out. And I know at times it's tough to see that and hear that, and we all go through different moments and times that are challenging, but in due time, the Lord shows himself and proves himself to be true, and the testimony of that is the cross, that in the face of an ugly and dark world, his love is greater because it is a love that is holy. And really, that's where we're going back this morning. We're coming to our second sermon on heavenly desires taken from the Sermon on the Mount. And of course, heavenly desires begin with the Lord himself. And in Romans 8, 13, Romans 8, 13, the Apostle Paul writes, for if you live, that's ongoing, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, ongoing, not one and done, ongoing. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And when Paul refers to the flesh and the deeds of the body, he's referring to our sinful nature, our sinful habits, our sinful desires apart from and opposed to God. And the clear warning that the Apostle Paul is giving us is that if we live according to our sinful and selfish and self-righteous desires, we will die. No exceptions. We will die. But he doesn't stop there. And he goes on to the good news of Jesus Christ, that in and through the death and resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ, God has provided a way for sinners to live. But it happens on God's terms, not our terms. And it requires, by Christ's command, to put to death the sinful and self-righteous desires and habits of our flesh. Not by our schemes and plans, and we talked about this, like church father Origen did in his youth and his zeal, but by the power of God by his spirit and by his word, by faith in Christ. And this is what theologians refer to as the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin. And within the context of the gospel, not our self-righteousness, not going to a monastery and whipping yourself, within the context of the gospel, this is an essential part of God's daily care for his children, his daily care for his children. It's also part of what is described as our progressive sanctification. 
that from the moment we get saved until we die or Christ comes again, the Lord graciously and mercifully day by day is doing a work in our lives to mold us into his image. And part of that is to set us free. Okay? From the sinful desires in our lives that have a hold of us and that we have not let go of. And we'll deal with this as we go through, but this is God's love as a father for his children, his desire that we would be free from what destroys us and what destroys our fellowship with him and what destroys our relationships with one another. And the testimony of God's word, as you read it from Genesis through Revelation, over and over and over again, is that God's love for his children is a holy love. It's a holy love. And our sinful and our self-righteous desires, and this is by way of review, they're like a cancer. They begin as a hidden and malignant part of our lives. And left unchecked, they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow and they kill and kill and kill and kill whatever's in their way. And like cancer and like cancer patients, we must make a decision. Will we try to control and manage this cancer on our own? Will we cover it up and try to ignore it or use external remedies on that? Or will we, by faith, surrender our lives to our Heavenly Father and to the great physician? And will we allow him to bring to bear the radiation, the chemotherapy, the surgery of the gospel to go inside us deep to the root of our sin and our sinful desires and to destroy and to cut and remove whatever is destroying us from within. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples in the Sermon of the Mount. He's coming in. He's taking charge of their lives. They have repented. They have followed him. And he is taking charge of their lives with his word. And with the power of his word and by the spirit that is present in him, he is going deep into their hearts and says, it's not enough just to look at your external actions, what you do in the temple, what you do in church, all of those external things. And with his word, he goes deep into their hearts. And why does he do this? Because his holy desire for the disciples he will give his life for is that they would be free. And they would be free of anything that would keep them from entering into his kingdom with him. And chief among those things is their pride, their self-righteousness, and their sinful desires. If you have your Bibles, have a look with me at Matthew chapter 5, and we'll read from verses 20 through 2.30. And this, as you'll recall, this is a series of illustrations and examples that Jesus is making 
of the righteousness that he has come to bring in the lives of his disciples. He says, for I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Now, it's worth remembering here as we hear these words, harsh, severe, intense, Jesus is speaking here not as a guru or a rabbi. He's speaking as the Messiah, the Lord, the King of Heaven. And according to Matthew 5.1, he's speaking to his disciples. First and foremost, his disciples, though there are crowds who have gathered. But he's speaking first and foremost to his disciples, people who have been blessed by God with a new heart, a heart that hungers and thirst for righteousness, the righteousness of God, not the self-righteousness of men. And this has been borne out in their lives by their obedience and their leaving everything behind, their repentance, and placing their faith in Christ and following Him. They hunger and thirst for a righteousness that religious leaders in Second Temple Judaism and churches and pastors cannot give them. That's why they're coming to Christ. But as Jesus points out in verse 20 through 30, this hunger and thirst for God's righteousness is just the beginning. Coming to Christ is just the beginning. It does not stop there. And like wanting a clean house, if this holy desire for being right with God, for God's righteousness, is to become a reality in their lives, someone needs to take out the trash. And this is what Jesus begins to do with his word, not only in their lives, but brothers and sisters, our lives too. It's one of the reasons why Jesus' word is so uncomfortable. It's not all love, 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 you're a good person, things are great. If we read all of it, we read there's a lot of it that tells us that we are ugly, wretched, as Paul would say, chief among sinners. Verse 27, 
He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And it's with these divine words, Jesus mercifully exposes, lays bare, and lays siege. He goes straight for it. For the cancer of our hearts, our ungodly and self-righteous desires. And this brings us to our first point this morning. Christ's word decisively attacks our ungodly and self-righteous desires. Maybe if I could have my first slide, that's great. Christ's word decisively attacks our ungodly and self-righteous desires. The testimony of God's word is that our eternal creator, what Danny talked about this morning, what we sang about, our eternal creator is holy. And he loves his creation and his children with a holy love. A love that is wholly devoted to what is right, to what is good. And that, by definition, is God himself and his glory. Now, brothers and sisters, how loving is it? How good is it? How right is it for a parent to ignore something or someone who is manipulating, exploiting, abusing their child? No big deal. Go ahead. Have at it. How loving is it of a parent to choose to ignore someone or something that is destroying their child from within or is coming in and actively trying to divide that relationship and the love that they have for their parents or their family? Someone or something divisive. Well, according to Jesus, this is exactly what ungodly and self-righteous desires do. And this is exactly what people who are ruled by unrighteous, ungodly, and self-righteous desires do. They are predatory. They are manipulative. They are exploitative. And their desire is to take and exalt themselves at the expense of others. That's contrary to the character of God. And that divides our fellowship with the Lord. And it divides our fellowship with one another. In our marriages, our homes, in every aspect of our lives. And this is what Jesus describes in verse 28 as lustful intent. It's what Paul addresses in the church in Corinth. Where incest is going on in the church. And Paul says, expel the immoral brother. Get him out of the church. Lustful intent, a desire for anything or anyone in any way that is contrary to God's holy will, his word, and his holy character. Anything that deviates from the will of God, the word of God, the character of God, by definition, is sinful and destructive and evil. And it will destroy our relationship with God. It will destroy our relationships with our spouses, our children, and every aspect of worship. 
And when we say anything, it goes from the forbidden fruit to a desire for a woman, to a desire for a car, to a desire for a career, for a desire for a ministry or a pulpit, anything that we exalt above the Lord or desire in a way that the Lord has not given to us. Satan will come in and he will exploit those things. He will bring in anxiety, discontent, and he will divide your relationship with the one who loves you most. And scripture also refers to these ungodly desires as covetousness, idolatry, selfish ambition. And according to God's word, such desires are self-serving, exalting, self-deceiving, and self-destructive. And brothers and sisters, we can masquerade these with Bible verses and we can cover them up for a season, but they can exist in as good things as serving in the local church. When I was in seminary, all these guys would go to the college ministry. I'm going to serve in the child college ministry. I'm going to preach in the college ministry. Some of them admittedly were there because they wanted wives. Where are you going to go? I'm going to preach and teach and whatever. We just we look at these things. Are you doing it for Christ? Or are you doing it? Or are you serving? Or are you giving? Or are you laboring? Because this furthers your agenda to get you what you want. And Jesus comes here with this example of adultery and says, look, at the end of the day, go past the external actions. Look at the desire of your heart. Is it a holy desire that is devoted to what is good and right and pleasing to the Lord? Or are you just trying to please yourself? And James, in James 3.14, if you have your Bibles, have a look there. James talks about this. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy or prickly zeal and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is what? What does he say? Earthly. Unspiritual. Unspiritual means not of the Spirit of God. And in case you didn't get that, demonic. Demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, I want, I deserve, God is wrong to keep it from me, what Pallison refers to as the I wantsies, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Brothers and sisters, where does disorder, divisiveness, conflict, and every vile practice begin? In our marriages, our homes, our families, our relationships, our ministries, our church. It begins with ungodly, self-righteous desires in our hearts. Selfish ambition, prickly zeal, bitter jealousy. And this is what Jesus, as Lord and King, is exposing and attacking with his word. When in verse 28, he says to his disciples, But I say to you that everyone, no exceptions, who looks at a woman ongoing with lustful intent, strong desire, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Has already crossed the line, is already guilty of violating the seventh commandment, is already deserving of death and hell and will, if unchecked and unrepentant, continue to be there. For willful unbelief and rebellion against our 
holy creator and his word. Now, I know that sounds harsh because he's looking at us. But brothers and sisters, praise God, we have a Savior who cares and loves and goes to the heart of the problem and does not cover up or make exceptions or minimize or make excuses or put band-aids on. And among the household of God and the people of God says, my house will be a house of prayer, not a den of thieves. He cuts to the root and heart of our sin, and he calls the disciples to do the same. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's our good Savior, because he loves us. And having exposed the root and heart of adultery with his word, what does Jesus do next? With urgency, before it destroys everything, Jesus cuts out and cuts off this cancer. And he does it with his command. Verse 29 and 30. Your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. Verse 30. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And this brings us to our second point this morning. Christ cuts off our ungodly desires, and he does it with his command. Christ cuts off our ungodly desires, and he does so with his command. As we said before, Jesus is not a religious leader. He is not a political leader. He's not proposing some external restraint or legislation for sin. He's not prescribing as a remedy for sin, cutting off body parts or covering women's heads with hijabs. He is the Messiah. He is the Holy Son of God. And he has come to save his people from their sins, which in verse 28, he has shown it originates not in our eyes and our hands, it originates in our hearts. So he makes that clear right from the beginning. And to avoid misinterpreting Jesus, we must carefully consider everything he says and we have to listen to him with heavenly hearts. And in verse 29 through 30, not by accident, Jesus introduces these two commandments with the word if. If. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin. And verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin. If is a word that introduces a hypothetical case or condition. What is Jesus doing here? He's introducing a hypothetical condition or case that involves our right eye and our right hand. Why is he doing this? In the ancient Near East, two of the most essential and valuable and dominant body parts were the right eye and the right hand. First century Jewish historian Josephus, he wrote about the practice of removing or cutting out the right eye of enemy soldiers who were captured. The intent and purpose was to incapacitate them as soldiers by removing that right eye so they could never fight in battle again. In the ancient Near East, the right hand was not just for work. With your right hand, you would greet. With your right hand, you would bless. 
with your right hand you would establish legal arrangements, whether to stamp with a ring or to sign. The right eye and the right hand were the gateway to the world. They were the visible expression of the heart's desires, what we look at, what we touch. So what's Jesus doing here? He's using a hypothetical case to make an invisible truth and invisible reality visible for his disciples. It's what we call an illustration. Where the illustration may not be real, but the truth and the command behind it is very real. And Jesus is saying here, let's suppose hypothetically, it's not your heart that's causing you to sin, but the most important part of your body causes you to sin. In Greek, literally, skandalizo. Related to the word scandal or scandalon which originates, scandalon is a bait trap. It is a trap that hunters or slavers use. And they set up this trap with a honeypot, something sweet, something attractive, a piece of food, or something valuable. And as you come and you look close, and as you go and you reach for it because you're greedy, and there's something you want that you think you can get for free, and you think you can get away from it as you reach for it or as you come close, that's what springs the trap. And it, boom, it clamps shut on your limb or something close to you, and then you find yourself while you're reaching that you cannot get free, and you're stuck on the side of the road waiting to either starve to death or until the trapper or hunter comes either to kill you or to take you and sell you into slavery. The image Jesus points to is of a greedy, unsuspecting fool who comes in and springs the trap. And now they're caught and now they can't move because of their eye or their hand. And brothers and sisters, from the Garden of Eden, to adultery, and for everything in between. This is how sinful desires prey upon our lives. They look for an area of weakness, an area of vulnerability, an area of desire. They come bit by bit, piece by piece, and they get a hold of a part of their life, and in doing so, are trying to get a hold of the entirety of our life. And for those foolish enough to stick around, it certainly will kill and it certainly will enslave. Brothers and sisters, this is the reality from our social media to our relationships to our world outside over and over and over again. There was a divisive man who was church disciplined out of a church that I attended. And he started his foray because he had season's Lakers tickets to invite members of the leadership team to go with him to his season's tickets at the Lakers game at what was at that time Staples Center. And during that time, he would spew out poison and pour out all his attacks on the church, on the leadership. What he thought of Dr. MacArthur, this would go on with elders Pastors, seminary students, whoever he could get a hold of. 
No, by God's mercy and grace, I, I hate the Lakers. Maybe if it was the Golden State Warriors, it'd be a different situation. The honeypot, brothers and sisters, the honeypot that's there where we compromise and we consider. And we have to ask ourselves with every choice that's put before us, is this going to draw us closer to Christ or is it going to take us further away? This conversation, is it going to draw me closer to Christ and edify and lift up the Lord or is it going to lift me up and flatter me and make it all about me? One of those choices is going to kill you, and one of those choices is going to give you life. It ensnares and it entraps, piece by piece. And in verse 29, 30, what is Christ commanding? Is he saying, keep looking, keep watching, keep reaching, keep waiting? St. Clara Ferguson points out, with this command, Jesus is pointing out, when you find yourself ensnared in sin, Certain conflicts start to come up over and over again. Certain anxieties and fears start to come up over and over again. You say, okay, this actually has a piece of me, a control of part of my life. Recognize the danger and the desire of your sin. Recognize the danger and desire of your sin. That's what Jesus is doing with this illustration. He's saying, you're in a place where destruction is near. This is killing you. Or it will shortly, and it's going to take you to hell. Recognize the danger and desire of your sin. Two, deal directly with the real cause of your sin. Deal directly with the real cause of your sin. Jesus says, if it's your eye that's causing you, if it's your hand that's causing you, cut it off. Part of the point that he makes here, and Sinclair Ferguson makes this point in his commentary, we have a way of substituting or blame shifting. It's not really this person. It's not really this ministry. It's not, it's not that I really desire to be rich or financially secure or have a great job. It's actually all of these other things. So I'll just pray more, give more money to church, show up. I'll just serve more. And we find all these collateral ways to try and cover and mask it up. That's the scribes. That's the Pharisees. And Jesus is saying, no, you've got to go to the root. You've got to go to the heart. You've got to go to what is causing you to sin and you need to pluck it out, cut it off, throw it away, and create as much distance between you and whatever is causing you to sin. The relationship, the friend, the job, but ultimately what's going on in your heart. That idol. Act decisively and urgently by faith in Christ's love and his lordship over your life. Christ loves me. He wouldn't ask this if it wasn't for my good. Christ cares for me, and he sees something that maybe I don't see. How often in counsel, when people bring something that's dangerous, resist, 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 push back. You don't understand. You don't know. You don't know this person like I do. Christ can see into your hearts, and he can see your future in a way that you cannot because he is the Lord of all. Will you give him that platform to say, Jesus, like the centurion, if you command it, I'll do it. Because if you say it is right. Pluck it out, cut it off, throw it away. Whatever is pulling you away from Christ. It's not hard, brothers and sisters. Is this taking me away from my Lord and Savior or is it drawing me closer? Why? 
Well, Jesus explains. He says, For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body goes where? Be thrown into hell. And this brings us to our third point for this morning. Christ infinitely values God's word and life. Christ infinitely values God's word and life. What's most important to you? In the movie 127 Hours, director Danny Boyle, he tells the story, the true story, about hiker Aaron Ralston. Maybe some of you have seen it. And he's the one who's he's the mechanical engineer whose right arm gets pinned under a boulder while he's hiking alone in Utah. And after he spends a few days trying and failing to free himself, he's forced to decide what does he love more, his right arm or his life. And during a portion of the movie, he goes through everything he's grateful for, his parents, how they've loved him, all of those different aspects. And he comes to realize a few days in that to be free, he must both break and cut off his own arm. And he writes, I broke the top, then bottom of my arm by bending my arm in configurations I knew would snap it. And when I broke the bone, it hurt, of course. But for me, it was a happy moment. Because what was trapping me What was trapping me was being broken. I was cutting through the skin. I was hacking through muscle. I was breaking the tendon in my arm, and he did it with a penknife, right? I would feel the pain, and then I would smile because the pain meant impending freedom. He'd been waiting for days. He was dehydrated. And at that moment when it is arm snapped and he began cutting through, he realized, I actually have a way out. And that way out is letting go of my arm. Brothers and sisters, freedom from sinful desires comes through obeying Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It's an act of faith. I'm going to obey him even if it costs me something, even if it hurts, even if it's difficult. That's what repentance and faith in Christ is all about. It's a radical removal of whatever keeps us from following Jesus. And brothers and sisters, it can be done with a smile even in the face of sorrow. Why? Because life with Christ, the life of God, the life of his word is infinitely greater and more beautiful than anything else this world as to offer, but we will never see it fully and experience it until we let go of what's pulling us back. In Matthew 7, Jesus closes the Sermon on the Mount with several familiar illustrations. And one of them is about entering into the kingdom of heaven through the narrow gate versus the wide path that leads to destruction. And the truth Jesus is illustrating is that as their Lord and as the King of Heaven, Jesus is 
literally saving his disciples from their sins. And how is he doing it? He's doing it by leading them personally on a journey or an exodus out of the kingdom of their sinful desires and into the kingdom of heaven. And Christ will lead the way. And he will lead the way according to God's word. And as he takes that way and he leads that way, it will bring him to the cross. And he will make a choice. And he will choose not just to cut off his arm. He will choose and allow himself to be cut off completely. The entirety of his life here on earth to be cut off. Not so that he can live. But so that he can give what is precious to him. The word of God, the life of God, and the love of God. For sinners like you and I. Now on that journey, one disciple will not make it. And instead of the cross, he will choose 30 pieces of silver. Not worth it. Can't let go. But by God's grace, 11 disciples will. And of those 11 disciples, 10 of them will give their lives as martyrs later. For the sake of sharing the life of the cross, the life of God and his word and the good news of the gospel that Christ is alive and not dead with a world that so desperately needs it. And brothers and sisters, God gives everyone who hears the good news of the gospel a choice and an opportunity. Will we follow Jesus to the cross? Will we let go of the sinful desires and the things that so easily beset? Or instead, will we choose our sinful desires? You get one, you don't get both. And there's some of you here today, your life is stuck. You're still hanging on. And you see it because your life goes in circles like 40 years in the wilderness. Same situation, same plea, same anxiety, same frustration, same conflicts. Those things happen, brothers and sisters, because we not only hang on to our sinful desires, but we hang on to whatever's ensnaring us and whatever is attracting us. And we're hanging on because in our heart's desire and our belief, we think that's more valuable than Christ. What is Christ's remedy for you? If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, this brings us to our final point this morning. It's not on your outline. If you listen to vinyl records, this is a deep cut. The extra bonus track. It's union with Christ mortifies sin daily. Union with Christ mortifies sin daily. Ted referred to this and talked about it in the prayer that he shepherded us with. Brothers and sisters, what is the remedy for our sinful desires and our sin? It's Christ. It's our union with him. It's a life with and abiding in Christ. But because Christ is holy and he loves us with the holy love, this is a union that necessarily 
mortifies our sin daily. You cannot walk with Christ, you cannot be with Christ without your sin being confronted. That's not the sum total of your relationship with Christ, but it is a regular part of it. It is there. What would we say about a marriage where there's an extramarital affair going on and the husband says absolutely nothing and says, hey, you know, just, just go, go talk to Will Smith, right? Okay, it's cool. Celebrities do it. No big deal. No. Because he loves us, he will address it with his word. He will do so gently and graciously, but he will address it. If we are indeed part of this union with Christ, it means necessarily that Christ will mortify our sins daily. And as we share his life, Christ commands us by faith to participate in this mortification and battle with sin and sinful desires. By faith, he's the one who does it, but by faith, if we're a part of his life, if we're married to him, we're going to be part of that mortification under his command to do battle on a daily basis with the sinful desires that are in our heart and that pull us away until we die or he returns. And we do so, brothers and sisters, not grieving or saying, I have to give up this, I have to give up this, I can't do this anymore, but where Christ resides and his love abounds, we do so, brothers and sisters. Yes, it might be hard. Yes, it might be costly. But day by day, as we taste and see that the Lord is good, we increasingly do so with the joy set before us to say, but it's worth it. Because I know he loves me. The cross says it's true. He is a good God. As hard as this valley is, the Lord is king. Brothers and sisters, this applies to every aspect of our lives. Will we stand with Christ in our marriage? Will we stand with Christ in our relationships? Will we stand with Christ in the ministry? Will we stand with Christ? Or will we do what's comfortable, convenient, and what pleases me? Puritan John Owen said, Believers ought to make the mortification of indwelling sin their daily work. And he's talking by faith. He's talking by faith. Well, how specifically are we supposed to do this? I'm going to take these last five minutes to walk you through the specifics. And the specifics are given by Christ himself. And he gives it to his disciples in John chapter 15. The night before he's going to be crucified, he walks them through because he's been doing it for them every step of the way before the cross. And after he goes, the Holy Spirit will come, and they, through the power of the Spirit and his word, will do what he has commanded. And in John 15, he begins by saying, He is the vine and we are the branches. And he points out foundationally, let's not get this reversed. You're not the one in charge. You're not the one who gives life. I am. And growing and being fruitful and thriving in Christ comes from being vitally connected with Christ. Apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Mortification, brothers and sisters, being set free is about having someone in your life who is bigger than your sin. It ain't me. It ain't you. It's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it begins with being vitally connected with Christ by faith. It begins by submitting to the gospel through repentance and faith in Christ as our Savior and Lord. It begins by following him. If you haven't done that, brothers and sisters, don't try and get under the hood. You're going to lose. You're just becoming a Catholic priest. But if you abide in Christ and you come to him, you who are weary and heavy laden, and you take his yoke upon you, you will find that he is gentle, he is gracious, he is kind, and he will give you rest. And so we must abide in Christ. And Jesus goes on and says, look, it's not one and done. Your life has to be remaining. I've come to you. I've saved you. I've brought you into my kingdom. Don't go running out the door. You need to stay with me. And part of that, what's associated with that, what we've written up there, okay, this is not a replacement of faith. These are not acts that you do, that you win. When you were abiding in Christ, you will listen to him as the most important voice in the room. You will hear him. When you are abiding in Christ by faith, believing that he is truly Lord and Savior, you will pray. And when crisis comes, you get anxious. There's a conflict in the home. Something comes up. It's to Christ we go and say, Lord, this is the second or third time this conflict has come up. This is the second or third time that I'm just getting anxious over A, B, C, D, or E, a coworker, an employer, the loss of a job, all these. You go to the Lord in prayer, and it's a prayer of, Lord, would you help me respond in a way that's pleasing to you? Would you help me trust you? Would you help me, who is weak and frail, look to you rather than my job, my fellows, my coworkers, and circumstances as the one who rules my life? Abiding in Christ means following him and obeying him. That through his word, when he makes it clear what that next step is, we say, okay, Jesus, if you're saying it, I'll do it. Because you're saying it. And you're my Lord and King. And what you'll see is you follow Christ. Your life is going to be filled with his love, his goodness, and grace. At the same time, as you follow, he is going to move your life forward. And as he moves your life forward, what is going to come are tests and trials and adversity. And he talks to the disciples about this. He goes on and says in John 15, 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, my father, takes it away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That as we walk with Christ and we continue to grow and we have this fruitful life, guess what? The Lord's going to come in. His Father's going to come in. He's going to bring circumstances, opposition, challenges where you have to make a choice. I'm going to run and I'm going to go for my 30 pieces of silver or I'm going to continue to follow Christ to the cross. I'm going to let go. And you see how he does this in our lives, brothers and sisters, where there are things in our lives that have been there for a season. And gradually and graciously, as we have time in his word, as we're fellowshipping with him, as our time with Christ is filled with that goodness and sweetness, we become aware, hey, maybe this isn't such a good thing in my life. 
maybe this relationship is not pulling me closer to Christ. It's pulling me away. I remember my mother. God bless her. Praise for her sons on a daily basis. Saying to me, Mark, this relationship, this relationship, I don't think this is a good thing. And I remember so many times before where I said, nah, mom, you don't understand this person. You don't know this person the way I know it. And it turning out ugly and bad, that it got to the point that as soon as my mom, she barely had to say a word, she'd say, Mark, I, I don't think this is good to say, this is something I need to get away from as fast as possible because she loves the Lord and she loves me and she sees it. And even if I don't see it, the Lord is going to bring those things into your life and he will do so sweetly. He will do gently in the beginning. But if you don't listen, the volume gets louder and louder and the pinch gets harder and harder. Pruning in Christ by faith. God will do that. And he will bring these challenges in and you will be faced with a choice. How do we address that? Well, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6, 11 says, Reckon yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We go to the gospel. We go to Christ. We remember who he is. We remember who we are, that we belong to him, and we are no longer alive to sin. Yes, it may pull. Yes, sin may knock at the door. Yes, sinful desires may press. But we don't have to open that door because there's a new master of the home and we live in a new house and it's one that belongs to Christ. And so by faith, the Apostle Paul says, hey, this is true. You need to stand in this truth. You need to believe it. And you need to make decisions and actions based on that truth. And then it comes as we come to Colossians 3 where the Apostle Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And as you go through the epistles, you're going to see this over and over and over and over again. He starts with abiding in Christ, usually the indicatives, the first portion of the epistles. And then in the second half, he goes and says, look, put on Christ, put off these things, distance, cut them out when you see them. Anxious thoughts coming in. I am not going to think this anymore. Discontent comes in. Anger, frustration, bitterness. Where do we go? But God is good. Christ has died for me. I've received more than I could ever hope or desire. He has forgiven me, therefore I will forgive regardless of what they've done. They've treated me poorly. I will pray for them. I will bless them. I will love them as Christ has loved me because I've sinned against Christ far greater than these people ever sinned against me. You put on Christ, and as you put on Christ, brothers and sisters, Christ being present will actively destroy sinful desires, sinful actions, sinful attitudes, sinful lies, because there is no room for Christ and our sin in the same place. And as you walk through the epistles, this is what Paul is doing with them over and over and over again. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to 
pursue Christ from beginning to end in our thoughts, our attitudes, and then our actions and our lives will follow. And we need to cut off and actively destroy. How? By giving Christ the rightful place in our thoughts, our emotions, our attitudes, and making the gospel, the good news, indeed, what we celebrate and what we live for. One final thought and word. It's worth noting that Augustine and John Chrysostom took this very passage that Jesus, that we dealt with today, about cutting off arms and plucking out eyes. And when they harmonized it with the rest of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation, their conviction was this did not apply just for an individual Christian. This applies for every aspect of our lives. This applies to our families, this applies to our marriages, and this applies to the church, where Christ's call for us is to move forward, as Paul says, considering that he's worth everything, putting aside those things that are behind, moving forward and pursuing Christ, and cutting off whatever holds us back. And that includes, brothers and sisters, church discipline in the local church. That globally, anything that comes in that is being ruled by a sinful desire, our remedy is we need to go to Christ and stand with him. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, you have come to set us free. You have set us free. As your word says, may we stand in the freedom you give and may we, may we give no ground to Satan's schemes and to the sinful desires of this world that destroy the good news. No, the good news will never be destroyed, but will attempt to, Lord, pull us from your love and your life and your word, which are more precious than anything this world has to offer. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that sermon. And um, for our song of response, um, we're going to sing uh, a familiar song uh, for us. It's uh, A Pure Heart, and I think it goes uh, just well with uh, what we just heard from Pastor Mark, that um, our lives, it, it really begins um, uh, with our hearts, first and foremost. And, um, you know, we know from the Bible that it's out of the heart that, you know, every vile practice comes. Uh, but praise God that uh, we have Christ who is greater um, uh, than our hearts and that can um, move us in the right direction. And um, let's just take some time of uh, silent meditation and uh, think about uh, the words that Pastor Mark spoke and think about our lives and the things that we are placing uh, above Christ, um, the things that... Uh, we are idolizing, and uh, let us confess those things uh, before God, and uh, let's just take a moment to do that, and um, in, in a moment, I'll ask us to stand, and then we'll, we'll sing a song response uh, together. <laughs> 